Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome back to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. And it's finally springtime in New York. So um, all of the snow is is melting. All of the garbage that has been trapped in that snow is now appearing. (laughs) I was just noticing that the other day. It'd be really nice. There probably is some New York City, you know, law, the regulation that says that you're responsible for taking care of the trash that the snow leaves behind in front of your property um, in the same way that you're responsible for clearing away the snow. And yet people don't really seem to take that as seriously. Yeah. In the Schaefer household, this is referred to as uh, snow raking time. Um, so uh, <laughs> What does that mean? Well, growing up, uh, all the snow that got shoveled on our driveway, it was a short driveway and we had a lot of snow generally, um, the snow would get piled up in this one corner of the driveway. So when the snow melted, there was still this big pile. So when it got to be slightly warm out, my dad would go out with a rake and level the snow so that it would melt more evenly and not destroy the grass below it. So snow raking time. Because the sun is shining and you're actually starting to sense the seasons changing here from winter to spring, we were inspired to create an episode for you about the seasons and how the idea of the seasons has played into Western art. So um, this can take a lot of different forms. So Sarah is going to talk about um, the idea of the months and how um, the the different kinds of labor associated with Um, the passage of time throughout the year as the seasons change and the weather changes um, has played into medieval art. And then she's going to move on and talk about um, uh, the painter Bruegel and the way that Bruegel um, depicted different seasons, again, uh, and their relationship to different forms of labor, of everyday people doing, you know, sort of everyday things around the year as the seasons changed, um, focusing on an image that represents summer. Um, Then we're going to switch gears a little bit, and I'm going to look at how the idea of the four seasons has actually served as an allegory to show the passing of time. I'll be talking about works by the artist Boucher and then also um, four abstract works by Kandinsky. Starting with medieval Europe and medieval France specifically, um, I want to talk about uh, uh, some sculptural ornamentation that's on the cathedral in Amiens in in, uh, northern France. Uh, This was a church that was constructed primarily in the 13th century, mid-13th century. As you approach Amiens Cathedral, which is at the center of this town, you'll see that there are three entrances. um, They're called portals, um, each of which is just absolutely covered with sculptural ornamentation. And this is a common characteristic of Gothic cathedrals, of which Amiens um, is a really important example. It's the second biggest Gothic cathedral in France. We're going to be looking at the leftmost portal or the north portal. And if we are considering ourselves medieval lay people, so not the clergy or not a king or queen, um, we would have actually not have been able to enter the central, the, the largest portal. The the sculptures that are closest to our eye level, and these are what we call relief sculptures. So they're they're carved basically into the building. They're not in the round. You can't walk around them. 
um, these relief sculptures that are closest to our eye line um, are two rows of quatrefoils. And a quatrefoil is basically a frame um, in the shape of a four-sided leaf. You know how I learned that word? How? Girl Scout cookies. Oh, yeah. The trefoils. The trefoil, right. They're not quatrefoils, right? They're they're trefoils. So three-sided. Yeah, so three-sided. So it's like that, but with four, right? I was only a Girl Scout for a couple weeks, so but this is really making me want some, um, what are they called? Thin Mints? No, I hate the Thin Mints. Samoas? Samoas, yes. Yeah, those mm. are the best. yeah I was never a Girl Scout either, but uh, those are my favorites. The yeah. yeah. So there are two rows of quatrefoils. Um, in the upper set, uh, each quatrefoil contains a sculpted image representing one of the signs of, a, of the zodiac. And below that is the corresponding image of a labor that is associated with that time of year, that month. So the one that I'm, I want to focus on is uh, the uh, zodiac sign for Aries, um, which is corresponding with the month March. And I picked that because we're in March and because Tina and I are both Aries. Even though we both have birthdays in April. Yes. <laughs> just made the cutoff. Yep. Um, the the zodiac sign for Aries is a ram, and that's what you see in this quatrefoil. Uh, the ram is walking in front of two bare trees, um, although actually the second, the, the uppermost bare tree kind of looks like it's coming out of the ram, but since it's carved in relief, it's kind of difficult to create a sense of depth, so we'll we'll let that go. Um, the bare trees are, are probably meant to signify that spring is coming. Below that, and, and what I want to focus on specifically, is uh, the labor that's associated with March, uh, which is tending the grapevines. And what we see in this image is a man using a shovel or a hoe, some kind of tool, um, between two posts with vines curling up them. Now, wine, uh, if you're familiar at all with Christianity, has great theological significance in a place like like a Catholic church. Um, at the Last Supper, of course, uh, Jesus shares wine with the disciples, saying that it is his blood which will be shed for humanity's sins, so that humanity's sins may be forgiven. So wine is a very important part of, of Catholic uh, ritual, and that would have been obvious to someone looking at this quatrefoil uh, in the Middle Ages. So you see grape you see grape vines. You know that the reference is to wine, which is a reference to Christ's blood. Um, the types of labor that are um, represented in these quatrefoils, um, largely relating to agriculture, these would have been significant for the medieval viewers of Amiens. Um, it's the center of, it was the center of a largely rural religious community, and much of the money that came in for building the uh, cathedral was coming from the countryside. So the people who were going to this church were farmers. Um, as I mentioned before, um, the 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 sculptural the quatrefoils are part of the sculptural program that's closest to eye level. It's the most easily visible part um, of the the cathedral when you enter. And I'll post an image to give you a sense of scale. Um, it's kind of hard to tell from the images, but they're they're basically at eye level, maybe a little bit above. As you move upward, um, the sculpture starts to represent more important or, or divine figures as opposed to what we see in the quatrefoils the the humans are look like everyday peasants and they're not sculpted in a great amount of relief there's not a, a, a huge amount of detail on them um, but w as you go upwards as the figures become more important there is more detail 
And this portal, the North Portal, is dedicated to a, a local saint, St. Fermin, who was responsible for converting the area around Amiens to Christianity in the third century. So above the doorway in, in a section uh, or in a, in, a, in a portion that's called uh, the Tympanum, we actually see events of his life represented. And and it's uh, what we what we ultimately find with with the quatrefoils in relationship to the larger program is that um, they function as as a way of tying the church, this place that would be the center of religious life for the surrounding community, to particular local traditions and and particular. Uh, acts and labors that that the people would have had to work through at different points in the year throughout the year and it's also a way of of reminding the viewers of the presence of god in their lives throughout the year um in visual terms that again would have been familiar to um to the people who would have been entering through this door in other words the kinds of labor that they themselves would have had to um would have had to do throughout the year Moving north and uh, further a few centuries into the future, uh, we come to the artist Peter Bruegel the Elder. Uh, and he was working primarily in Antwerp uh, in the mid-16th century. In 1565, Bruegel was commissioned uh, by a wealthy, wealthy patron, Nicholas Jongelink, uh, to paint a series of works depicting different times of the year. Only five of these still exist, and m- most sources, if you look them up today, will suggest that there were six originally, but I've seen suggestions that there also may have, there may have been 12. Um, I guess the five, or the six is probably more likely since five survive, but um, I don't know. Uh and if there were 12, it would be kind of hard to imagine since they were for a single patron. And while I imagine he had a pretty big, this was for um, what was probably a pretty big summer home outside of Antwerp, but the, they're, they're big paintings. The one I'm going to be talking about is about five feet across. Um, uh, so having 12 of those in one space would, would be a lot. Plus he had a lot of other works by Bruegel. Anyway, of the five that survive, three are in uh, Vienna, one is in Prague, and one called the Harvesters uh, is in the Met uh, in, here in New York. So that's the one I'm going to be focusing on today. Um, it's likely representing approximately August or September, so late summer, um, the time when wheat would have been harvested. And, and that's what we're witnessing in this painting. We're situated in a field of wheat that's in the process of being harvested. So in the fore to middle ground, we see some peasants um, thrashing and bundling wheat. Uh, the the sort of main figural group is actually taking a break, uh, enjoying a meal. Um, while there's this narrative that's set up through the series of paintings of the passing of time, so different points of the year and kind of like at Amiens, the different labors that are associated with those times of year, um, there's also an interesting sense of, of time passing within the painting, within um, within the, 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 the painting, the harvesters. And it's something that is very characteristic of, of Bruegel, that he creates this complex narrative that it really takes time to kind of unravel. You really have to work um, to get the sense of the overall message of the painting. So as I mentioned, we see some peasants at work. Uh, we see bundles of wheat that are uh, bundles of wheat that have been completed. You also further towards the back see some women carrying the bundles on this this path that meanders through the landscape to the harbor. 
Um, and, and Antwerp, once again, where Bruegel and his patron Yongelink were based, um, was a really important port town at this time. So um, just to clarify what you're saying, Sarah, basically Bruegel actually he's only offering us sort of one frame of a film, if you think of it that way, right? One mm-hmm. image. And yet within this one image, he shows us past, present, and future. Right. Because we see the um, the the action that took place in order to make the um, uh, harvested wheat. So we see the harvesting of the wheat. Then we see the wheat as it's already harvested, gathered up. And then we see the harbor where that wheat is going to go and get exported. So exactly. past, present, and future all in one image. And so when you talk about the image taking time to see, I mean, it's partly because there's so much detail to look at, but mm-hmm. also because there's actually these different moments in the painting and you have to sort of put them all together and understand the story. Right, exactly. Although we've been highlighting the, the different narrative elements of, of Bruegel's painting, and in the harvesters you see things like people picking pears from a tree, monks bathing in the distance, children kind of playing in the background. Really the subject of the painting in large part is the landscape. Um, and the, with Bruegel, this is really one of the first times where we see landscape becoming a subject in its own right. Um, he uh, creates a, a great amount of detail in this work uh, about the landscape, but when you see it in person, he does it with a surprising economy of, of means. Um, the stalks of wheat are, are really delicate and, and appear almost um, transparent. There's great um, atmospheric uh, perspective in the background, in the harbor. Unlike what we saw in Amiens, where there's this effort to give the labors theological significance, um, this these labors don't seem to be tied so much to the church, but rather just to the everyday experience of the practice of, of harvesting wheat or, or whatever has to take place um, during that point of the year. And that's really emphasized through the focus on landscape and the details of the landscape. Although I should say there is still a church peeping through the trees in the background. So even in 16th century Antwerp, the, the church is obviously um, still has a great amount of power and you can see that kind of um, uh, uh, peeping through um, in the back of the painting. Yeah, but I like um, I, I like that point though because it it helps us understand how there's sort of an increasingly secular emphasis in art on the everyday life of people, mm-hmm. um, and that in both of the examples that you've talked about for us, um, the the way that the, the everyday life of people is is marked and measured is through the activities, the physical labor that they do, that's tied, of course, to the cycles of nature. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, everyday people at this point, you know, they're not, um, you know, they're, they're, there's no such thing yet as like blue collar or white collar labor. It's like everyone's a farmer. <laughs> right. So um, everyone's life is really very much governed by the seasons. And, you know, it's really artists, um, you know, I guess, what I was going to say, you know, in the Northern Renaissance, who started paying a lot of attention to um, the activities of everyday people. We think of this as the invention of genre painting. We talked about this with Thomas Kincaid. That's a painting of everyday people doing everyday things, um, as opposed to the history painting, which is a painting of, you know, a great man or great men doing great things like a king or Jesus or something. Um, but even in the medieval example, as you've pointed out, there really is an, an attention to you know, what everyday life is like for these farmers and, and how their lives can be measured out according to um, the, the seasons and the, and the passing of time and the cycling of, 
and the cycling of nature. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that's rather lost to us, I think, today when we're talking about the passing of seasons through um, the visibility of garbage as the snow melts (laughs) and we can get avocados any time of the year. Yeah, it's not like, okay, now it's time to go like, you know, plant my seeds or whatever one does in springtime. I don't even know. God, my great grandfather was a farmer. He would be horrified. Yeah. All right. Well, now I am going to sort of pivot and talk about um, a series of two series of four paintings. And these reflect a very long tradition in Western art where artists would make four paintings, each of them representing um, a a season. So Sarah touched on this with Bruegel that, you know, there's some speculation that there were six paintings, maybe even as many as 12 representing each of the months, if not um, 12 and six, you know, representing sort of, you know, the overall um, transition from January to December. Um, I'm talking about this tradition of actually representing spring, summer, autumn, and winter as a, as a set of four. And this is very common in Western art. The first cycle of seasons I'm going to be talking about is by the French artist Francois Boucher, um, who lived in the 18th century and is a master of the style that we call Rococo, which, um, just like the Baroque movement that preceded it, um, it still survives as a kind of adjective. So when you describe something as um, Baroque, it's very dramatic. And when you describe something as Rococo, it tends to be very like frilly. Um, My high school art history teacher described Rococo as frou-frou on steroids. Yeah, that sounds about right, actually. Mm-hmm. I just think of a lot of, lots of cotton candy. Yeah. Um, uh, Boucher was born in Paris. He was the son of a painter. He was very accomplished. He won um, you know, a major painting prize from the French Academy of Art in, at the age of 20. Uh, eventually became a professor there and ultimately the director. Uh, his most famous pupil was uh, the painter Fragonard, who also makes these very um, sort of similarly pastel and, and pleasant images. Um, starting- Although ironically, his other most famous pupil was Jacques-Louis David, who could be who was as far away from yeah. Rococo in his painting style than one could imagine. Right. So one of those is the prodigal son. Um Uh, Starting in the late 1730s, he began frequently exhibiting at the Salon that Sarah and I have talked about um, in previous episodes. That was sort of the official exhibition of the most prominent artists. Uh, Boucher eventually um, became the favorite painter of the King of France and his mistress, the Madame de Pompadour. Um, And he actually becomes the the premier painter, um, sort of first painter to Louis XV in 1765. And um, so this guy's very accomplished in his life and basically is, you know, uh, an artist for the one percent. Uh, that's, you know, really his his thing. And he um, will, will die while painting in his studio at the Louvre. Um, so um, he uh, really is known for these images that are um, for, you know, I say jokingly sort of the one percent. I mean, really, they're for the aristocrats, they're for um, the royals. And so you can always expect these images to be um, very pleasing and very pleasant. Um, so as opposed to the images that Sarah talked about, where you see time being marked by physical labor, there's no labor <laughs> in these images. Um, there's no labor at all. The paintings I'm going to be talking about are at the Frick here in New York. And there is a, a room known as the Boucher Room. And this is not where those um, these paintings are located. In that room, you'll find his series of the arts and sciences. And so these are showing uh, the range of human activities. So um, comedy and tragedy, poetry and music, architecture and chemistry, 
fishing and hunting. Lots of little babies. Yeah, lots of little babies. So everything here is, again, it's an allegory. So it's showing just one or two people doing these activities, but those people represent, you know, the entire field of, let's say, architecture and chemistry. Um, so similarly, these, these four paintings, which are located in the west vestibule at the Frick, this sort of like tiny little room off to the side, are also allegories. And they show, just like the Norman Rockwell images, a couple in different moments in time. And it's not really as clear that they're aging. Um, so it, it's not necessarily that there's a narrative of, you know, the spring of their love um, as youths and then they get older. But you definitely do see a progression of the seduction. And so um, that's fitting for the fact that these were made for Madame de Pompadour, again, the official mistress of Louis XV. I love that there's an official mistress. You yeah. know, just... <laughs> and he had multiple official mistresses. Yeah. I mean, to be the unofficial mistress, how terrible. Yeah. Um, and to be the wife, uh, <laughs> even worse. Um, so uh, not only is there no um, labor here, but there's also no aging. Right? So these are two things that are um, total anathema to, um, to Rococo art. They're, they're the opposite of what Rococo wants to see, right? We don't want to see people doing physical backbreaking labor, like tending the vines, and we don't want to see people growing old and getting wrinkled and ugly. Everything is about pleasure and leisure. Now, in all four of the paintings, we see a very lush uh, landscape, um, a somewhat wild landscape. Uh, now, in other words, we're not in an obviously tamed, um, typically French garden that's very disciplined and cultivated. And because it looks a little bit wild, it has that connotation of romance and also of being isolated from civilization. So you get the sense that they're not in a garden that's being um, you know, uh, that's directly underneath the windows of a palace where people can spy on you, but they're sort of out, you know, that they've gone out into the deep woods and they're hidden away and they're by themselves. Now, even though they are having um, a, a sort of romantic afternoon out in the woods and a lot of, in uh, at least three of these images, um, they are, their bodies are very close to us in the sense that they're in the foreground of the image. So they're um, sort of right up against the, the um, imaginary plane in front of the painting. Um, and their bodies are also arranged in a way where they seem to be presented forward towards us like actors on, you know, on a stage directing out at the audience, um, directing themselves out at the audience. So there's an interesting tension in these um, that's really about voyeurism. Where on the one hand, we get the, you know, the sense that they are doing something secret and naughty and we get to enjoy the fact that we are, you know, peeping in on them. But on the other hand, um, you know, they're they're definitely um, composed in such a way that we get to fully see what's going on. You know, if we were really spying, you know, it's like we wouldn't be able to get as clear of a view. And, and so Boucher has sort of given us a full frontal access um, to the lovers um, while making it seem like we're sort of spying on them and they don't know that we're there. So um, in spring, we see that he's putting flowers in her hair and she's got a basket of flowers and they're both sitting down on the ground. Um, they're intertwined. So just like he is reaching forward to put flowers in her hair, she has her arm resting on his leg and she's actually got her elbow basically in his crotch. Um, so they're both sort of leaning into each other in this way. Of course, flowers are a sign of spring, um, but they're also a very potent sexual metaphor here, right? So you think of 
um, the way that the plucking of a flower of a maiden's flower is a is a metaphor for um, a maiden losing her virginity. And so even though she's blushing and she's looking away from him, Boucher is already giving us a little bit of a hint about how the story is going to end. Right. Um, but there's that excitement, that sort of dramatic irony where we know it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And we're sort of excited to see it play out. Now, in summer, it's definitely played out. Um, I think it's pretty clear that they're post-coital in this image. Um, he's naked and seen from the back. She um, very obviously has thrown her dress to the side, um, so taken off her dress, and it's um, on the ground next to her, and she's just wearing these sort of like white um, undergarments. Um, it's slipping off of her shoulder, and she's pretty cavalier about it. She's making a little bit of a gesture, maybe, but um, to sort of fix it, but not really. Um, she's seated in a somewhat lewd or suggestive pose. She's got one knee up, which means that her knees are a bit parted. Um, so you can just imagine, you know, um, what's underneath um, that robe in there. Um, interestingly, there's this sort of looks like a threesome. There's another female figure um, who's joined them, and it's only in this in, in summer that you see a third figure who, who is also um, disrobed. And um, there's a chance that um, this isn't meant to be led, uh, read literally. It could be a kind of allegory, a kind of like Cupid-like figure or psyche or something like that. Um, but, you know, uh, it could also be read literally. <laughs> um there's a fountain behind them with um, waters running through it. And I think that this both helps us understand that it's really warm. It's summer, right? That water is not frozen. It's flowing. And you get the sense that it's like this hot day. And so they've taken off these clothes and they've had a romp in the forest. Um, but the water could also be, if you want to be very, um, I call this being Dan Brown, where you just think that everything is a coded symbol, which, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Mm. Um, but you could say that that is a sort of sign of, of the fact that their waters are flowing, so to speak. Um, they were saucy, those 18th century aristocrats. Ro Rococo's really naughty. Yeah. I mean, but remember, this is, you know, this is paid for by a king. This is a gift to a lover. And, you know, it's like softcore porn, right? Mm -hmm. This is, you know, this woman's entire existence basically, you know, was about, you know, pleasing this guy. And so, yeah, these images are definitely pretty saucy. Um, there are other things going on with Rococo paintings in terms of political meaning and message, but um, we're not going to get into that here. Um, in autumn, we see um, the man offering the woman grapes. So again, very different from, um, let's say, the medieval image that Sarah talked about at Amiens Cathedral, where we see people harvesting the grapes, or even in Borgo, where we see people, um, you know, or not harvesting the grapes, but they were tending the vines, right? Mm -hmm. So we see in, in Amiens Cathedral, they're tending the vines. In Bruegel, they're harvesting. Um, and, and here we just have, you know, we don't know where these grapes came from. Um, we don't know if they're wild or if somebody else had the responsibility of planting and caring for them. That's of no concern, um, to these lovers, nor I would think to Madame de Pompadour. Um, basically it's, uh, it's just, you know, a sign of, of intoxication, right? That they are just enjoying this fruit, the sensuality of eating, the grape, and then, of course, you know, the grapes being a sign for wine. Um, so this whole image is really about intoxication. You see that she's got a straw hat on her head, but the hat is perched at a very sharp angle as if the hat's tipsy, like it's literally tipped up on the side, like it's going to fall off. Um, you see that his hat has fallen on the ground. Um, the tree behind them even is at a sort of 45 degree diagonal angle, 
which can be read two ways. You can see that as being um, a sort of phallic image um, because it does sort of seem to project from behind the male's um, body, but also that it's a tipsy tree. The tree is sort of like half fallen over and a little, little, you know, drunk. Um, Again, her pose is suggestive. Um, She's sitting and you can see that her feet are together underneath her dress. But if you just look at where the folds of her dress lie, it seems pretty apparent that her knees are are open. Her knees are parted. Um, and she does have one hand that's sort of delicately pulling up um, the, the edge of her dress on one side. Uh, in winter, um, this is probably the most um, famous and the most beloved of the series of paintings. It's just so different from the others. It's got a very notable... Uh, Russian influence there was a big vogue at this time for all things Russian and so he sort of looks like a tartar and um, he's pushing her on this tartar sleigh through this winter wonderland Um, and uh, just like the man before was doing all the work of of begging basically in all of these images and she's sort of playing coy here she's just sitting and along for the ride while he's obviously doing all the work of pushing her along um, one of the reasons this one, this image is so beloved is because there's a really cute little joke that's embedded here if you look closely. So um, you'll notice that it's freezing cold outside, right? Freezing cold. Um, there's, uh, you know, it's, it's white everywhere. It's snow everywhere. She's wearing a fur-trimmed gown and has a fur necklace on. And it's so cold that her hands are in a muff that are protecting her hands and keeping her warm. But even though it looks like it's about, you know, maybe 20 degrees at warmest, her décolletage, her chest is totally exposed. She's wearing a low cut gown. So even though it's freezing, she's still showing off the goods. Um, and you'll notice um, if you follow the direction of the gaze of um, the, her companion behind her who's pushing the sleigh, he's not looking where he's going. He's looking straight down her top. <laughs> so it's very, very clear that he's like, you know, getting a good look at that skin that she's exposing. Um, there are a number of uh, really great little details here that also sort of, um, you know, capture you and bring you in. So she's got a ribbon in her hair and you see it billowing in the wind, which gives you this sense of, you know, I really doubt the sleigh was moving that quickly or could move that quickly, but um, you know, it's a very heavy looking ornate expensive, you know, there's like a gold, um, bird on the front of it. So it probably wasn't moving that fast, but it just gives you the sense of the energy of these two lovers and how they bring that, um, everywhere they go and in all seasons. And this is the only image where, um, one of the lovers directly looks out at us. Um, so in all the others, there's again, that sense of, um, voyeurism that they don't know that we're watching them, but. Um, we are and we have like front row seats thanks to Boucher Um, here she actually looks straight out at us and she's got a smile playing on her lips and I just read this as if to say like you know yeah I know how to work it you know like I I know how to make him you know push me around on a sleigh all day and you know and we know how you know she gets him to do things for her right Mm -hmm. it's it's what he's looking at that's uh keeps him keeps him around to push her around on the sleigh um, so in some here, you know, the, the, the seasons really aren't so much about the passing of time, about the natural process of aging. It's not about the labors that, you know, peasants use to mark um, the year. It's just about pleasure. It's about the, the sensory pleasure of the different seasons, the heat of summer, the crisp, cold air of winter on your cheeks that make your cheeks pink. 
um, that's really what um, this, this series of the seasons is all about. We're going to wrap up with a very different series. Um, and this is uh, by the artist Vasily Kandinsky. And these um, paintings are at MoMA here in New York as well. Now, Kandinsky was a, a Russian-born artist who moved to France, to Paris, which was the epicenter of the avant-garde in the early 20th century. And he was one of the major pioneers of abstract art. So in 1913, he coins this term non-objective painting to describe painting that doesn't have an object, that doesn't represent anything in the world, like a chair or a horse or a woman. Um, this is right around the time, actually, that abstract art is invented. We can pin it to about 1911, 1912. So he really is, again, one of the, the pioneers of abstraction. And like a lot of other pioneers of abstraction, he, you know, I think felt um, kind of defensive about this abstract art. And people couldn't really accept that you could just put color and line and form together and call it art. It seemed like there had to be some other reason. We call this the motivation of abstraction. It's like, why are you doing this? How, how can that be art? That's not enough. And so one of the early ways of defending abstract art, of motivating it, was to make the comparison to music. Because music is similarly abstract and yet is also capable of conveying or expressing ideas and emotions. So abstract painters like Kandinsky um, would say that, you know, just as the composer uses these abstract um, forms like rhythm and tone and chords and all of that to create something that moves people that now painters were going to be doing the same thing. They were going to be using the raw materials of color and line and shape to, in order to um, make people feel something. And uh, he uh, really notoriously, um, explicitly connected art to music Right, so there's this one quotation that accompanies these paintings at MoMA where Kandinsky said, color is a means of exerting direct influence upon the soul. Color is a keyboard. The eye is the hammer. The soul is the piano with its many strings. So basically color, um, you know, plays on your heartstrings kind of idea. Um, these particular four paintings were made for a, a major capitalist industrialist, Edwin R. Campbell. He was the founder of Chevrolet, um, the car company. And these were for the entrance foyer of his Park Avenue apartment. They were made in 1914. So remember, I mean, this is like right at the moment of the dawn of abstraction. I mean, it's really exciting that he makes these huge paintings, um, you know, for this really important space of this very wealthy man. Um, you know, very, very cutting edge stuff, right? Brand new abstract painting. Um, at some point, they were separated. Two of them ended up being sold at auction in the 1950s to MoMA. The other two um, were um, found in the 1940s during World War II um, when a housekeeper was cleaning out an attic and she sold them to the Guggenheim and then the Guggenheim sold them to MoMA where they were reunited with the other two that MoMA had bought. So they now have the complete set. We're not entirely sure that this series is supposed to represent the four seasons. Um, they don't have that title today. They're just known as number one, two, three, and four. But um, anytime you see four in Western art, that's usually a pretty good hint that 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 what we're talking about is an allegory of the different seasons. And also we do know that, a, that the drawings, the preparatory drawings for these works 
um, because they were planned out and composed. They're not spontaneous like Jackson Pollock's abstract paintings, um, that the drawings seem to to look more like landscapes, like sort of mountain figures. Um, You can identify them. In the final paintings, it's very difficult to isolate um, things like mountains to specifically identify any um, objects, right? These are non-objective paintings. Um, but the idea of the seasons is still sort of there in the sense that some of these paintings are lighter and darker than others. They don't progressively darken like from spring to winter, but, um, uh, they do sort of change their brightness. Um, and I think that really these connect to the idea of the seasons changing mostly through the idea of energy, that there's a lot of dynamism in these works. And this is true actually of all of Kandinsky's work. So this isn't perhaps the best argument I could make, but, um, again, if you're talking about four works of art, I think it's so hard to escape the idea of the four seasons. And here you do see the energy that sort of drives the turning of the earth and the changing of the seasons. So you have these really bright colors that are very energetic, um, you know, lots of pigment, and um, they're usually put together in such a way that there's a, a high contrast. So the colors really pop. Um, you have a lot of squiggly lines. There's like no straight lines and there's no perfect geometry in Kandinsky. There's no such thing as like a perfect circle or perfect triangle or perfect square or a straight line. So you have all of these lines that sort of bend and curve and move and they're, you know, they're squiggly. We call this biomorphic um, because they look more like biological figures than abstract geometric figures um, in their imperfection. And then finally, the overall composition, there's a lot of energy um, because it's not uh, perfectly symmetrical. Um, like you don't see the, the figures and the forms and the shapes, um, arranged on the canvas in a, in what we would call a stable composition. So in other words, that there's just as much blue on the left as there is on the right, or that there seems to be more going on in the center and then less going on towards the edges. These are very, um, very asymmetrical in terms of where things are located, in terms of where colors are. Um, so uh, almost random. And so that also implies a kind of energy. So here, if we do have the seasons still influencing art, it's it's not as a as a literal thing, right? Like changing weather patterns. It's more about this concept or this abstraction of energy. And so this actually fits very well with, you know, what abstract art was all about. Now I'm gonna go listen to some Vivaldi. Yeah, this Vivaldi. Yes, yes, okay. So, so it's this. I'm glad you said that, Sarah, because it just goes to show that this idea of the four seasons is not only in visual art, right. but it's it's in all of Western culture. That you know, thinking about the passing of time in this way of ordering uh, life. You know, before we all had you know wristwatches, right? And now Apple wristwatches next month. <laughs> it's my birthday. Um, you got to treat yourself, right? Um, if, if, you know, now we think about time, you know, down to the millisecond um, in these very precise ways, but um, that when people were m- more tied to the, the patterns of the earth, um, you know, that you, you thought about time in sort of much more macro scale. As always, you can find images that we've discussed uh, on our website, which is arthistory.today. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistorytoday or on Twitter at arthisttoday. That's A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. Mm-hmm.